Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. And today we're going to go uh, down a little bit different uh, pathway than what we would typically do in terms of uh, uh, working with uh, serial entrepreneurs, um, that sort of thing. I've got somebody here on the show that I think we're going to actually really benefit from in terms of this conversation. Um, when we think of wealth, you know, one of the anchor points on wealth, um, particularly when we're looking at asset uh, development, is real estate. And in times of uh, pandemic, you know, which we're in the midst of, you know, wealth becomes a real interesting question to wrestle with. Yeah, how do I, how do I create it, number one, uh, but also how do I you know, hold on to it? Um, and there's a soul component to this that I want to bring in. And the guest that I have today, Jeff Holzman, uh, I had the great pleasure of having him on uh, David uh, Meltzer's in my uh, office hour show a couple of weeks ago. And I loved what he was uh, presenting. And more importantly, I just, I just really uh, resonated with what he was speaking about and how he was speaking about some of this stuff. So I'll, I'll kind of weave in a little bit of Jeff's background as we start, uh, start the conversation. But Jeff, I want to just welcome you uh, to the show. Thank Thanks, Blaine. It's great to be back. Yeah. And yeah, just before the show started here, we were talking, he's, he's down in Dallas right now. And Dallas is just recovering, as, as is all of Texas, from you know, a fairly significant uh, cold spell uh, that basically shut the state down um, and impacted real estate in some very fundamental ways. And Jeff is the um, COO of an organization called RREAF, uh, which is a real estate uh, investing firm, very novel. In, in terms of how they uh, approach their business. And primarily the focus is on commercial, but it's more than just a commercial investment in a, in a REIT as, a, as an example or something. Yeah, there's a lot more to this, you know, where the workplace comes in, the workforce comes in, uh, living styles come in. I mean, there's just a lot of things that you know, kind of fold into what it is that uh, you're doing. And you're also the CEO of the IRM subsidiary. So I wanna talk a little bit about that as well here. So. Why don't we just start real quickly with um, an overview of the soul of business. When I ask that question of my guest, you know, what, 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 you know, what kind of is evoked? What comes up for you when you hear the term the soul of business? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. And I think that's one that uh, now that you've mentioned it, it's something that I think I should ask myself almost on a regular basis and my team as well. And let me kind of put everything in context. So Reef. Reef Holdings, one of our parent companies here at IRM, and I'm currently in our IRM's office uh, in Dallas. Reef is also located here. We have offices in New York and New Jersey and Salt Lake City. Uh, we have offices down in uh, Honduras and Central America. So we're really uh, all over the place. And with pandemic, we've had so many people transition to remote. But one of the interesting things about IRM and our parent company, Reef, um, the other parent company is into it. It also is the same concept, is that they're privately held companies. Uh, they're not REITs, they're not publicly traded. And I think that has a huge impact when we talk about the solo business, because you get to work with people that you trust. And, and I wouldn't say it's a family business, we're a large organization with hundreds of people, but the soul and the spirit and the culture that you create, and really it starts at the top and resonates all the way down to the bottom, really dictates how the day-to-day -day look like. And it, it has everything to do with the, the organizational culture, how we treat people, how we work with people, 
how we work with our investors, how we work with our clients, how we work with our vendors. And you really, and I'm sure most of your viewers are, are people with experience that have been through multiple job cycles. It's a huge difference from the minute you walked into the office. It's the way people speak. It's the way people dress. It's the way people talk. And you create this atmosphere. And this is something that we're very proud of here at IRM. You create this atmosphere where it's okay to say, oh, I've made a mistake. Oh, I forgot about that. As opposed to other organizations where people are immediately defensive. Oh, I didn't forget. You misunderstood. I told you. No, 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 no. We don't need any of that. So for us, the soul of business really is a reflection of, of your own soul. It's like bring in the good side, come in with a smile, talk genuinely. And I'm not selling you on any pipe dreams. I'm not telling you it's going to be great and everything will work out. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But we will treat you with the same soul and respect and dedication and professionalism that we want you to treat everybody else. And I got to tell you, in a measurable fashion, that makes a huge difference. We have very little turnover. Most people that work here stay here. Uh, we have extremely positive customer service feedback, with, not without exception. You can't make all the people happy all the time. But generally speaking, people know that when they call us, when they talk to us, when they invest with us, they'll get a straight answer. They'll get a professional answer. We don't beat around the bush. And that is kind of the soul and the drive that we bring into the business every day. And, you know, I'll tell you what I told my wife. Um, I don't know what, what's this talk of, a, of a work. I haven't worked a day in my life. This is a lot more than work. I genuinely come here and do what I do anyway, which is speak the truth, treat people with respect, try to learn from mistakes, do better. I do that in my personal life, in my professional life. And knock on wood, so far it's working really well. Yeah, what, and, th and this is exactly what I was uh, resonating with when last we spoke on, uh, on our Office Hour show. Um, there's, there's this element of authenticity that, so you know, I've been around the, the block a, a, a number of times, um, and when we get big money, and, and you have over, you know, what, a billion and a half, billion and three quarters, you know, right. you know, under management, I mean, you got some big money that you're working with here. Um, it's, in my experience, people saying, you know, I made a mistake is not something that I'm typically used to experiencing. Yeah, uh, yeah, in that dynamic. So that authenticity, that relational authenticity, yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised that you have retention in the way that you do, both from a customer uh, client base, but also, and I think more importantly, from an employee base. Um, that authenticity is an invitation to participate. And, and I love how you've set that up and, and the attention you know, to culture. Was that accidental or was it intentional? Oh, nothing is accidental. Uh, I, I think I've had the, the benefit uh, as I rose through the ranks in business, I've, I've, I won't disclose my age, but I'm nearing 50 and I've been doing this for a long time. And very early on, I had the, uh, the pleasure, if you will, quote unquote, of working for some bosses that were not very good. They were very aggressive. Uh, there was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of uh, being defensive, not just with me, but also with their bosses and with other employees. And as I kind of rose through the ranks, I looked at it and I said, that is exactly what I am not going to do if I ever am in a position of power and influence. And because I saw what it did to me as an employee. It made me sheltered. It made me defensive. It made me the opposite of what I would want to encourage my employees to do, which is come to me if there's an issue. Tell me the good news and the bad news because we need to know. 
and ask questions so we can get to the answer. And by the way, Blaine, I'm not saying I have all the answers. God knows I don't. I don't know everything about everything, not even in my own firm. We have fund administrators, we have asset managers, we have accountants, we have legal, we have an entire legal department. I don't know how to do all of their jobs, certainly not better than they do, but I own up to it. And I say, okay, we have a problem we can't solve. Let's Google it. Let's call an expert. Let's ask a colleague. Let's open a book. Let's brainstorm together. I don't, I don't hide it and, and shove it under the rug and say, ah, don't worry about it, because that's not an answer. That's not my role as a leader. And that is really, in my opinion, the, the soul of the business. As long as you create that vibe, that atmosphere of like, hey, and by the way, to put things into perspective, everybody here is a professional. Our asset managers have over 20 years of experience. It's not like we're walking around with, you know, butting our heads in the, in the wall saying, oh, how do I turn on the light? <laughs> don't, you know, don't misunderstand me. Yeah. We're talking about a much more, a much higher level of performance. We're talking about perfecting your game. We're not talking about learning how to play the game. Everybody here is, is experienced. But at every level, from the receptionist to the, to the director of asset management, People know that they're in an environment where it's okay to ask a question. It's even okay to mess up occasionally. Can't mess up every day, everything. That's not going to work. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to BS your, your viewers. This is not, uh, let's all get along, sing Kumbaya and hold our hands. That's not it. But at, at the level of perfecting your game, there's no need to hide a failure. And we do this thing, we call it the debrief. We get together the different teams every month and we debrief. We talk about something that went wrong and we say, how can we learn from this? What happened? Why did it happen? Is it because you don't know? Is it because we have bad procedures? Is it because uh, you don't have information, data points? Is it because you don't have authority to make a decision? You have too much authority? Let's talk about it. And I always lead the way. I always show up and I raise my hand and I say, I'm Jeff and I want to talk about something I did wrong this month. Let's learn from that. Yeah. And I think by setting the example, you're almost creating a situation where if one of the team member doesn't have an example of something they did wrong, they feel bad. You're like an outlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But think about it. What, isn't that the culture you really want to create? By the way, I do the same thing with my family. We don't shout. We don't scream. We don't say, I never did anything wrong. We encourage you to, to kind of talk about, all right, I messed that up. I'm sorry. My bad. I'll clean it up. Yeah. So a D group. Is that, did I get that term right? It's a debrief. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a concept that that we've adopted from the world of aviation. Right, I was gonna, yeah, that, that's exactly what I heard because you're an airline pilot. I wanted yeah. to touch on that, but I was kind of one of the things, Jeff. You know, and this I love this about you, uh, and, it, and it was present in something that you said just a little bit ago about I yeah I can't I can't believe this is work. What's what's the, yeah, work? What is that about? I I'm doing who I am. Correct. And for me, that is the soul of business because it taps into the soul of who I am. Um, and if I've got access to that, you know, uh, Gallup does this survey every year. You're probably familiar with it on uh, employee engagement. And one yeah, of the of questions that they ask is how, how frequently do you get to do what you love at, you know, at work? And that is one of the key indicators of emotional engagement. Do you get to do what you love? Which is another way of saying you get to do who you are cool, while right. you're at work. And, and if it's not working, you're in the wrong place. Exactly. Yeah. One of my grandkids the other day, well, the other day, uh, about a year ago said, Grandpa, when are you going to retire? And I just, just kind of, why would I stop doing what okay. I love to do? I would be doing this even if I wasn't working. I mean, this is just what I, this is how I be in my life. Yeah. And as an airline pilot, and, then, and this, there is a, there is a, <laughs> there's a, 
I'm closing the loop on this. You you bring in yeah in the in the military too. They have after action reviews, and, uh, right. and, and that was moved into the airline industry. We did some work with United years ago, uh, cockpit uh, work uh, with. Uh, well, I won't go into that rabbit hole, but yeah, there was a lot of stuff that we did there. Um, so being in, being willing to take the the shoulder uh, markings off and sit down and say, what happened? Right. What happened? What else? I mean, and I, and I, I'm butchering this question. Um, what parts of your life are not portable? I guess I'm going to ask it in the in the inverse here. What part of your life do you, is there segmentation that you would like to not experience? And I'm asking this in the context of the solo business because every one of us compartmentalizes in some way, and there's a price to that. You know, there's an energy cost to that compartmentalization. And sometimes it's, uh, there, there's a cost benefit to it as well. I mean, there is a benefit. I wouldn't do it otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. As, as the CEO of a very large organization managing a significant amount of money and you're leading hundreds of people, what kind of compartmentalization do you get tripped up on? Or do you wish didn't exist in the organization that compromises your effectiveness? That's the question I wanted to ask. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and I'm happy to answer it. But I, I just want to point out that it's you know, Woody Allen famously said that we are uh, a sum of all of our experiences. Yes, uh, which I think is is a very fair representation. So uh, I can speak to my experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be analogous to every single uh, one. And that, that's fair another enough. thing that I've learned in life: is you pick up these little tidbits. They may apply to you. They may not apply to you. They may apply to you in the future. But, you know, you, you are a sum of everything that you hear and everything that you apply. So let, let me kind of try and address that question. So I think on the subliminal level, uh, everything is transferable. Because really everything that you learn with your friends, with your family, uh, different jobs, it shapes who you are and, and your culture. Uh, but there are some rules, aspects, tricks of the trade that don't necessarily transfer very well. And I'll give you an example. In the world of commercial aviation, much like in medicine, you're dealing with um, the lives, not just the livelihoods, the physical lives of other people. Um, that's why there's very little tolerance to risk. Um, as a commercial airline pilot, you know we often talk about this, uh, you're really a risk manager. You go through very, very professional in-depth training um, and you follow the rules. There's a checklist for just about everything, except what we call uh, uh, extenuating circumstances, where nobody wrote the book about it, so you have to use your training and best judgment. But generally speaking, 99% of the time, you do everything by the book. It, it's granular to the point where the words that I utter in the cockpit are, are exactly what the other captain, what the first officer, that's what they're expecting to hear. You don't just randomly say, oh, look, look at that. No, 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 that's not what we say right now. So everything is, is choreographed. And what that does is it creates a level of consistency uh, that comes with a lot of safety that is very, very high quality. So you know that 99% of the time that flight's gonna go exactly the way every other flight in your 20, 30, 40 year career went. But there's no room for individualism. I can't give you, uh, you know, a 30-minute shortcut because I think I can go around. No, we don't go around anything. We go by the book. And that's great. It produces very uh, consistent, safe results for an airline. Can you transfer that state of mind to a business? Not so much. 
Because in business, you have to sometimes take risks. You know, you do a deal, you buy a multi-million dollar property. That's because somebody else wants to sell it. Uh, so is it a good deal for you? Is it a good deal for them? Is this going to turn out to be a good deal in two years? Some of it is posturing. We're very honest with you. Some of it is posturing. Oh, I don't want to sell. But if you want to buy, you know, you know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not, it, it's not all transferable. So you, and you have to understand that you can use a certain skill set. And, you know, one of the things that we do here at IRM and indeed at Reef as well, we have an employee manual. We literally have it. I, I have a copy of it. It's a book. We literally put together a book. Uh, I'll try to show it to you. I think my, uh, <laughs> the, it's, the, uh, it, there it's it is. There we go. Yeah, it's a book, and we literally have procedures in place for every one of the employees and checklists with what they're supposed to do. Now, is it like an airline? It's not unlike an airline in the, in the sense that you're trying to bring order and procedure and accountability, but you cannot automate uh, a business to the extent that you can something like an airline because you need some room for creativity, individualism, uh, um, risk-taking, so you really have to, the way we describe it here, and I think you're going to love this analogy, is that some of it is science and some of it is art. Yeah. And you can't yeah. try to automate the art. You got to let the artist be an artist. But you can, with some science, define borders. Hey, don't go off the canvas on me. Mm -hmm. Don't jeopardize the whole <laughs> business because you think you have a great idea. So we use science to kind of frame the art, but yeah. we still let the artists do their work. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, to pick that analogy a little further, yeah, yeah, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, you know, the paint by number canvases, and you know, the paints were numbered and the numbered spots on the canvas, and you would right. paint the numbered spot, not unlike, you know, a checklist, not unlike a process, uh, and and it has a predictable outcome, yeah, assuming you stay, you know, relatively within the lines, and I love the point that you're making because for me, you know, the the access point to creativity is imagination. And imagination is the gateway into the soul because the, the soul looks for expression. And there are places where it needs to be allowed to be expressed. And that's not necessarily in a cockpit or in an OR. I do a lot of work in the uh, hospital space, in the uh, medical space, and in checklists there too. Yes. Um, yeah, you don't want to have you know, somebody going off the reservation necessarily to, yeah, to be a so, cliche. That's a, great, that's a great analogy. You know, if, if I go on a commercial flight, I don't want the captain to be very creative. I just yeah. want him to get there. If I, God forbid, have to go have a surgery, uh, I want the doctor, I don't want him to experiment because he's got an idea. I yeah. want him to do what needs to be done based in science to, you know, to get me fixed. But that's not always true if you are designing a hotel. Yeah. If you're operating a commercial portfolio and if you want to try something uh, uh, new and try to try a new initiative. Yeah. You know, when Amazon first started and they had their vision of becoming the everything store, people said that guy's a nut job and it will never work and he doesn't understand. And the science, we know, you can't, the economics are not there. Well, guess who's laughing now? So, you want that level of creativity and risk-taking in some areas in your life. I always joke that, you know, how much risk are you willing to take when you go into a new restaurant and order something off the menu that you don't know exactly what it is? Sometimes you feel like trying something new. Sometimes not so much. Not so much, yeah. And on that note, we're going to take a brief break because I want to come back. And this, this whole notion of risk and how it can either strangle or unleash the soul, Correct. Uh, I think is going to be a great topic. 
So we'll be right back. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to also invite you right now to go to blainebartlett.com. And on that site, which is my personal website, you'll see uh, services up on the top menu. I'd like you to click on Leadership Mastermind. Now, why I want you to do that is we have uh, structured a mastermind program that is very unusual and it is very powerful. And by going onto that site and clicking that link, you'll be taken to a landing page that is an invitation to join this mastermind. It's a 52-week long exploration of what it takes to be a highly effective leader in today's fast-changing environment. You won't regret it. And if you've been liking what you've been listening to on these Soul of Business podcasts, how does one become a leader that can keep connection to the soul of business? That's what we look at. That's what we're about in this mastermind program. So again, go to blainebartlett.com and click on the services link. And there you'll find the link to the Leadership Mastermind program. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this little commercial. And now back to our show. Welcome back. Um, you are listening to Blaine Bartlett and the Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. My guest today, Jeff Holzman. Uh, before we took the break, we were looking uh, at opening up a little doorway into risk and risk mitigation. And there's an interesting correlation, I think, between being an airline pilot, which essentially a large part of the job is risk mitigation. Yeah, and you want to lower the risk. Yeah, you, you don't want to have a lot of tolerance for risk. You want to, right. yeah, break. That's also true from a leadership perspective in any business. And uh, the, the flavors are different and the look is a little bit different. As the CEO of your organization and as the um, COO of the larger parent organization, yeah, in real estate, I mean, you you can get pretty creative with this. And the laws of the land favor land owners, property owners, to a significant degree. And this is where wealth uh, management comes in. This is where wealth building comes in, a lot of those things. And there's an element of risk to, you know, we, we know where the border is on the laws, typically. We, you know, those are pretty, pretty bright-lined uh, and I've got to assume that when you're putting some of these deals together, you get close to, you know, you know, working with, and you, and, you know, somebody once told me that the nature, you know, to understand the nature of any game, you have to understand the rules of the game. And you can do a lot of things if you really understand the rules of the game. And that's really where I think your organization excels. Uh, just based on the little bit of research I've done on it, you really do understand the rules of the game. And the consequence of that is that you bring a wealth opportunity to your investors uh, that is pretty unique. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. And I think that's a great point. You know, someone famously said that you have to know the rules really well so you can decide how to break them. Um, that's, that's not necessarily what we do. You're right, the devil is in the details. Everybody and just about anybody with some limitation can go and buy a property. But unless you have the knowledge, and the knowledge is spread across many, many different people. I certainly am not the one that has all the knowledge. But REITs as an organization or parent company is, uh, is what we call a vertically integrated developer. And that, that's a fancy term that you hear a lot, but what does it really mean? It means that if you look at the value chain through real estate, 
just about all of it is done here in-house. So it starts all the way with acquisitions that we have our own people. We don't rely on a broker to bring us a deal. We have our own team that is spread throughout the country and they're constantly going out and looking at properties. We do our own underwriting. So we don't go to a third party to try and analyze and build a model on how much money this is worth. We have our own assumptions and we do everything in-house. Um, we do our all legal work. Everything is in-house, full-time legal counsel, assistant legal counsels, uh, paralegals, everybody is in here. So the knowledge is constantly accumulated here. Um, once we uh, operate um, an asset, a multifamily, a hotel, a piece of land, all of the asset management component is done in-house. The property management is done in-house, which means the actual people who are doing the maintenance on your unit, collecting the rent, uh, cleaning the trash, those are all people that work for us. That is the vertical integration. It's not always ideal because your headcount is huge. We, uh, we, we pay hundreds of different people's salaries every month. And we love those people, but it gets complicated and it gets expensive. So not everybody can sit in front of you and tell you that they're vertically integrated and they do all this. We do. And that's a measure of risk, right? Taking on so much obligation, so much essentially payroll every month is yeah. a huge risk. That's you, a make sure you, you can feed all those mouths. But what you do is you, over time, create a lot of knowledge. All those little tidbits. Oh, you know, this just happened, but the insurance carrier can actually talk to the municipality and that could save us $50,000 on fixing the plumbing. I didn't know that. Yeah. But by having all of those people work in your organization, everybody knows a little bit more. And if you have good lines of communication, you get much better opportunities in buying, in operating, in selling, and you get much better economics for your investors. That's why we've been so successful in creating all of these deals. You know, we operate over 60 different properties at, at Reef, and every single one of them is doing well. And again, knock on wood, you know, there's COVID and there's some challenges. Certainly there are challenges, uh, but nobody ever lost a dollar so far. Again, knock on wood, we hope that the trend will continue. Yeah. But uh, people have made consistently double digit returns here and that's not an accident. That's like you and I were saying earlier. Yep. That is not an accident. That is because you have good people in the right place and you take care of them. You compensate them. You make sure that everything that they know is, is the knowledge is spread throughout everybody. It's encapsulated in a manual. And the next time we do it, we do it even better. Yeah, so absolutely. yes, it's, it's how you build an organization. And, and you know, that, that whole question of design, yeah, I... <laughs> Um, I do a lot of leadership development work and in, in pre-COVID, I would do a lot of trainings uh, for organizations kind of, you know, like IRM. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I would typically do is you know, have everybody take out a sheet of paper, an eight and a half by 11, an A4 size piece of paper and make a paper airplane. And then the, uh, the instruction was your task is to fly that airplane to a target and hit the target that's about, oh, say, yeah, you know, seven meters away, five, you know, 15, you know, 15 to 18 you know, feet out there. So on your mark, get set, go. And they let go of the airplane, they fly it, and nobody hits the target. Yeah, yeah. And the target can't be a wall. It's got to be a spot on the wall. Yeah, so a specific target. And show of hands, how many uh, have uh, made paper airplanes before? Everybody's hand goes up. Yeah, everybody used to be a kid. We all did it. And uh, how many hit the target? Nobody's hand goes up. Uh, and if there's an outlier out there, it's because they probably cheated in some way. <laughs> now, the, the point I'm going to with this, Jeff, is from a leadership perspective, I'll ask the question, as a leader, what role would you imagine if this was a real airliner, what role would be the most important role to ensure that that airline 
action or that you know, that plane actually gets from say Dallas to New York. What's the role, the specific job role? And most people will you know, default to the pilot or the navigator. You know, hands-on control, you know, keeping the focus on the direction. And then we'll get the engineering you know, question in there sometimes. Uh, ATC sometimes comes up, but all of that you know, kind of gets off of uh, the point here because the point that I want people you know, really get to land on, no, no pun intended, um, is that the primary role that ensures the effectiveness at plane getting from point A to point B is the role of the designer. If you haven't designed that plane to get from point A to point B, I don't care how good your pilot is, I don't care how, how meticulous you are at uh, calculating the route, if you got a mountain in front of you and you can't turn or climb, you got some problems. So the designer, how do, is the system designed? And most people have inherited organizational structures that are legacy. And this is kind of one of the questions I asked about, was your culture designed or was it accidental? Um, the idea here of intentionally designing for a specific outcome is something that I understand that you guys have done particularly well. And again, this was something that I was struck with in our first uh, conversation. Yeah, that vertical integration, there's a cost to it, but the benefit side of it yeah, is, is profound. And it also, yeah, and this is the piece, in, you know, excuse my long you know, preamble for the question here, but from a design standpoint, yeah, when you're looking at leadership being the activity of co-creating coordinated movement, having an integrated vertical you know, design allows for that co-creation and that coordinated movement to occur in a different fashion than if you don't have that sort of integration. Am I correct in that assumption? Yes, 100%. You know, this whole concept, and this is how I spent most of my time as the leader of this organization, is designing processes uh, that can essentially contain what's going on here. And it starts out with, and, and I'm a software engineer by training, it, it always starts out with uh, input and output. So we, I always ask the team, all right, what's the input? Like, wh what are you getting? Who will you get it from? You get a phone call, you get an email, you get a proposal, what, you get a question, what is it? What do we do with it? And what needs to come out on the other end? And, and this may sound, to some of your viewers, this may sound very basic, but if you really stop and think about it for a minute in your job, for any, anybody who's watching us now, just stop for a minute and ask yourself, well, wait a minute. If I think about it in that way, maybe I can design a slightly better process. Yeah. And I can almost guarantee nine out of 10 times, somebody just stopping to think about it in those terms can design it better. So, hold on, what's actually coming in? What can I do with it? And what needs to come out in the other end? And, and we, do, we do that very well here. But I want to point out something else, because I think maybe a lot of your viewers can say, I don't know who these guys are. How are they doing it so well? It hasn't always been like that. Blake. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, even even on a personal level, you know, we talk a lot about the solo business. I wish I could tell you that I'm here today approaching the age of 50, knowing that this is exactly what I wanted. And I went through the steps. to. The, no, I don't. You know, <laughs> life happens. You jump from one place to another because you meet a girl and you have a job offer and you, you, you followed some kind of dream. Things happen for all kinds of reasons. So I think to be fair for all of your viewers, especially when we talk about Reef, our, our parent company that's been in business for many, many years and is, is very well known here in Dallas and, and has been tremendously successful. It's, uh, 
a lot, you know, a lot of this starts out by get a couple of people getting together and doing what they do, and they kind of organize as they as they move. But and this is a huge but. When you get to a critical mass, it's usually to the point where you have you know, a lot of employees, you know, more than ten, and 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 we now have hundreds. That becomes unbearable, right? If you're a slim team, the three of us working together. We don't need a manual. All right, you and I will get together. I'll talk to you at seven. We'll, we'll, we'll shoot an email to that guy. We're good to go. Once you get to 10, 20, 30, certainly 100 people, you will, you will completely be lost without a manual. And this is why, Blaine, is because not everybody lives inside your head. Yep. Even if you're a great communicator, they don't always understand what you want, what you mean, how you want it to happen. You need to have procedures in place to deliver consistent, measurable, desired results. And you do that through designing a process. And by the way, just designing it is not going to solve your problem. You need everybody to understand that and play by the rules. Yeah. And boy, and that is a huge distinction. The container, I mean, if I took uh, you know this cup of tea and dumped it on my desk, it doesn't have a lot of utility. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> the container is what makes it useful for me. Correct. That's such a good point. Uh, I love yeah. that analogy. I'm going to use that. Good. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, the uh, United Kingdom uh, uh, Tour de France team, you know, mm -hmm. you know, they they never won a Tour de France, and they brought a uh, coach in that started doing some work around how are you pedaling, where's your foot on the uh, the pedal, small things, but it was all focused on what's the process that you need to master in order to ride effectively. Don't worry about winning the Tour de France. Exactly. Now, they ultimately did win the Tour de France, not once, not twice, but a number of times um, as a team. And it was all attributable back to get the processes right. What's coming in? What do we want to have coming out? Exactly. And how do you know, and what does that washing machine look like in the middle? Exactly. And, 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 and that's where the fine tuning is. And when you, I call it reducing complexities. Yeah, which is exactly the same. I basically say, I want everybody to know the big picture. I want everybody to understand how the company is doing. And I do that. I do weekly all hands with, and I update everybody about everything. But I say, hey, you don't even need to understand that. You're welcome to, to learn about it, transparency all the way, but you don't need to know that. Yeah. You need to understand exactly that little portion of, of the, the food chain that you're on. But you need to do that exceptionally well. And you don't have to do it exceptionally well right off the bat because we're all human. But get every week, I want you to get better at that, better at that, better at that. And that's what I'm telling you, I'm telling the other guy. And yeah. one after the other, it all escalates up and we get a phenomenal product. Mastery, as far as I can tell, is an evolutionary process of continuous improvement. Exactly right. And it's that evolutionary piece that we want to be paying attention to because that's where growth happens. And that's, again, kind of going back to the solo business. Uh, people want to do good. They want to, they want to excel. Right. And if, you, if you're putting that in front of them as a challenge, as an opportunity, exactly. uh, here's your little piece of the pie. Here's how it connects upstream and downstream. You, you start to lock this in and feel free to innovate here within the certain parameters. Exactly. Uh, and this experiment. is gonna experiment. And right. look, they, they're gonna be doing the same thing and you get the communication going. You've got, you've got you're cooking with gas at that point. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No pun intended, again. And, and you know, I think a lot of leaders spend time thinking that in order to motivate the team, they need to give them more money or give them all kinds of benefits. Don't get me wrong, all of that is important. 
Yeah. But that's not it. Blaine, yeah. that's not it. Nope. It's about how you make them feel. What, do I show up to work? Do I do something meaningful? Am I contributing? Am I getting better? I've seen people at data entry level in our organization excel and tell me how happy they are because they understand what they do. We had a guy come in the other day and said, you know, I thought about something. If I have two windows open, I can copy this and we'll save a bunch of time. And I told him, you're brilliant. And I want everybody to know that this guy came up with a great idea. You see him, the guy is like, and by the way, I think this guy is up for promotion and he's going to do great. But the reality is you give them something to focus on and you tell them that is yours. Make yeah. it better. As opposed to telling them, you only touch this and I don't want to see you touching anything else. It, you're telling them the same thing, but in a completely different way. You say, you own this Excel sheet. You own this data. Go do it. Co-creation begins with ownership. And it's ownership right. that is the consequence of co-creation. So we've been talking to Jeff Holzman, um, CEO of IRM and COO of Reef. And Jeff, where can folks uh, find out more about you, about the organization? And if they've got some investment questions, who, who, who might they uh, you know, contact? Yeah, of course. So uh, visit us online, as we say, uh, reef.com. That's reef with a double R. And our other parent company is Into. That's Into with a double I. Uh, those are two great platforms for real estate investments that I strongly encourage everybody to visit. Whether you transact or not, you learn a lot just by reading some of the background, the history, and feel free to reach out and ask questions. Both of those organizations will happily take your questions, even if you're not investing. If you just want to learn, they'll point you in the right direction. Perfect. Jeff, I want to thank you. You've been listening to the School of Business uh, with Blaine Bartlett. Uh, go to my website, uh, speaking of commercials here, um, blainebartlett.com. I want you to check out uh, the Leadership Mastermind uh, program that we're working with right now. And you'll find that up on the uh, the menu bar. Uh, go under services and you'll see a little notation there for Mastermind. Um, it's a great program. Um, it's uh, very affordable and it will improve dramatically your leadership effectiveness. So take advantage of that. Again, Jeff, I want to thank you very much. And uh, folks, tune in next time and we'll see you then. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.